the reading of the scriptures from Psalm 26. So I invite your reverent and also joyful attention to the public reading of God's word found in Psalm 26. A Psalm of David. Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity, and I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. Prove me, O Lord, and try me. Test my heart and my mind. For your steadfast love is before my eyes, and I walk in your faithfulness. I do not sit with men of falsehood, nor do I consort with hypocrites. I hate the assembly of evildoers, and I will not sit with the wicked. I wash my hands in innocence and go around your altar, O Lord, proclaiming thanksgiving aloud and telling all your wondrous deeds. O Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. Do not sweep my soul away with sinners, nor my life with bloodthirsty men, in whose hands are evil devices, and whose right hands are full of bribes. But as for me, I shall walk in my integrity. Redeem me and be gracious to me. My foot stands on level ground in the assembly. I will bless the Lord. There is a uh, quantity uh, that speaks to worship. Uh, the more people that come, I presume it's perhaps uh, easier to, uh, to worship God. Uh, I think in the American experience, I, I think we solely sometimes uh, focus upon the quantity of worship. Uh, sometimes uh, we are so desperate for quantity that we fashion our services after our youth or we do contemporary things. Uh, I, I saw a very interesting illustration to this effect uh, in an advertisement I received uh, this past week uh, from some type of company that uh, tries to help churches with uh, their quantity of worship. Uh, it's a smoke-generating machine. Well, it was very novel. I mean, do we create smoke so that I rise up out of the smoke and everyone's in awe? I, mean, I, I just thought it was very unique. But it's simply an illustration that we sometime in America are desperate for the quantity of worship. And there's a place for that. I don't discount that. And, uh, and yet David this morning gives to us another uh, approach, and that is uh, the quality of worship is uh, manifestly uh, important as well. Uh, because he's going to tell us that the character of worship is important too. The character of the man of God who comes to worship. Uh, we see this uh, in verses 1 to 3 uh, in David as he makes a very passionate plea uh, that God would vindicate him. Uh, and then in verses 4 to 8, he gives to us the qualifications of true worship. And then closes with a petition that he would be accepted before God in verses 9 to 12. Uh, in terms of classification, our psalm is an individual lament. Uh, David is in trouble. Uh, the historic occasion, we don't precisely know. This is often the case in the Psalter. But uh, the context suggests that uh, David has been falsely accused 
and perhaps driven out of the city. So he cannot have access to God in his localized presence in temple and tabernacle. And what's remarkable about uh, the plea for vindication is that David wants to return. Not so he can be home, sleep in his own bed, eat at his own table, but so that he can go to the place where God manifests his presence and worship God. His, his every desire is to return to the city for one reason. If you will, go to church to publicly worship God. Because again, oftentimes the character of worship is seen in the character of the worship. Her. And David desperately wants to go to church. It drives him a powerful way. And that true worship that David brings to us this morning is displayed in his plea for vindication in verses 1 to 3. Essentially, it is his plea that he, he desperately wants to go back to the city. Or if he were alive today, and this was uh, his psalm today, is he's desperate to go back so he can go to church. He wants to return. And he petitions God to vindicate or acquit him because he's been driven away. Uh, of course, you and I know that God is the preeminent judge who determines what acceptable worship is. But there's something about raw desire that captures the essence of a man or a woman who wants to go and be where God localizes his presence. I understand God is omniscient. And that God is omnipresent and God is omnipotent. But he does localize his presence in the place that he ordains where he is to be worshipped publicly, and that's where David wants to be. And his raw desire is very instructive to each of us, reminding us that sometimes, while quantity may be important, so too is quality of the character of the man who comes to worship the one true God. Uh, he offers uh, three reasons why he wants to be brought back and that God would permit him to return. Uh, first, he says, I have walked in my integrity. Uh, this word has the basic idea of wholeness in its relationship to Torah, the law of God. Uh, he says, I've, I've been accused uh, incorrectly. Uh, my body and soul are whole with respect uh, to the law of God. Uh, it's very interesting uh, to me because I think sometimes uh, we, uh, we compartmentalize our sin and we uh, close things off. It's there, but we shut the door until we open it again. David said, I've not compartmentalized my sin. I am whole before God. I am seamless before God. And I want to come back. Uh, it is, I think, an application, a good reminder in our lives that uh, we can say to ourselves something like, well, uh, I, I compartmentalized one day. Don't shut off any day. Every day belongs to God. Don't compartmentalize your life or your sins. Everything belongs to him. Every nook and cranny of your soul is his. Uh, David says, I am whole. Maybe so for us. 
because the character of our worship is important too. Secondly, he says, I've trusted God. I, I've relied upon him solely and entirely. Uh, the Greek translation says, I've hoped in God. Uh, he's been driven out of the city, but he continues to trust. He continues to hope that one day God uh, would uh, permit him to return. Uh, that God would remove his accusers who have driven him out of the city. It's very interesting uh, uh, when you look at uh, the word trust and you run it through different grids in the Old Testament. Uh, Psalm 31, 6, uh, uh, the psalmist says, I hate those who regard vain idols, but I trust in the Lord. Man, the word hate is awful powerful but he hates the idolatry. Uh, men who fashion images of God and worship the image rather than the God of Scripture. Uh, something we rely upon him other than God. Uh, sometimes uh, we, uh, we trust in our riches, Psalm 49.6. Uh, even those who trust in their wealth and who who boast in the abundance of their riches. There's nothing wrong with riches or wealth, but uh, we should not rely upon them or trust in them because they cannot fix our souls and God cannot be bought off. Ezekiel 33, 13, a man who trusts in human righteousness will never work. Uh, remember a number of years ago, I read a phrase by Warren Buffett, he says, I gave $30 billion to charity and it's a good way to get to heaven. Now, the problem is with that is that dollars cannot buy divine favor. There are many people in America who think that they can give and buy their way out of, I don't know, purgatory maybe. God cannot be bought off with the currency of the American dollar or the Swiss franc or the lira, or whatever currency of the world. He's not for sale. He gives by grace. He doesn't sell his favor because it cannot be bought. All the riches in the world could not be gathered together and given to God to turn his head, to be favorable to us, because that is not the currency that ought to fashion our worship. Thirdly, the New American Standard reads a very important phrase as uh, something of the character of David's worship uh, without wavering. I read it in a different way that I will not slip. That David is unshakable and steady in his resolve to go to church that he might worship God publicly. Unshakable. 10,000 voices call upon us on any Sunday morning. I understand that. I understand that if we could, in the eye of reality, look at the golf courses today, many would be worshiping God there. Many are taking their children to some sports event so that they perhaps can get a college education paid for because of the prowess in sports. All of those things have a place. But David's place is riveted that he might be where God is. And that's what owns him. 
I suspect many people give their hearts to 10,000 things. But David is teaching us that the character of his worship ought to, in some measure or form, capture the character of our hearts to worship God aright. Remember a number of years ago that Margaret Thatcher turned to President Bush and said, respecting a very important enterprise, don't go wobbly. Sometimes we go wobbly in our worship and we give our hearts to cheap things. David wants none of it. His next plea in verse 2 is for God to test him. Well, that's a scary thing. But it does in a measure define the heart of a man who opens that heart for God to look at. God looks at it anyway. But he requests it, that God would sift him. That he would be found proper as he wants to go back to worship. Sift him in his inner man. Psalm 139 is a powerful psalm of the majesty of God. He knows everything about us. He knows every word that's formed upon our lips before it rolls off our tongue. He knows our lying down and our rising up and everything in between. That knowledge, David says, is too wonderful for me. And then he ends his psalm in a majestic declaration, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there is any wicked way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. It's a great prayer that God would search him and lead him in the right way. Two of these words for searching or examining are words used in the smelting of metal. We take metal to a smelter to refine it and to purify it. David says to God, make it so that I might worship aright before thy divine presence. Uh, the last uh, word is for God to test his experience. That it too would be in accordance with the majesty of God. There's something about uh, going to worship God that before we go, we ask God to sift us to make sure we're going properly. Uh, to make sure that we would be riveted on him and not ourselves and give our thoughts to so many things. It is, I think, something that's suggestive of the character of worship, that God would take us and smelt us to purify us, that we would be uh, in the right spirit and mind and frame to worship him. I, I understand the American experience. We practice our sports so that we can shave time off of our speed, strokes off of our golf game. May it be so. Nothing wrong with it. But think about God saying, test my heart that I might worship thee in the purity, suggestive of the purity of thy holiness. May that rivet our hearts. Play golf all you want. Run fast and fleet. Give your mind to the things that you need to do so at work. When it comes to worship, give your heart to God. And give it wholly, totally, and purely. For such is the character of the true worship of the one true God. It's a reminder that true worship is greater than the visible or the outer man. 
because God looks at the heart. You can fake the external. You cannot fake the heart before God. He sees it all. He knows it all. He knows your thoughts before you even think them. And so it is that we ought to come aright and properly because of who He is and who we are in desperate need for Him. Something of this in, is, is there not in the words of our Savior when He writes or tells and preaches Matthew chapter 5 and verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Something of the singularity and purpose as in Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 5. shall love... Lord God, with all your heart and all your mind and all your soul. It's a troubling word in that verse that we ought to stop and reflect upon. Moses doesn't say that you might love God, your heart, mind, and soul. He says all. All your heart. He claims it all. He wants it all. He wants nothing left to another God. In classical Greek, the word purity is used of a man who is debt-free, meaning that he has no distractions. Great deal of wisdom to that and understanding of the purity that we ought to bring in the worship of the one true God. There are many distractions. Leave them outside because of the engagement within. In this sense, David has no baggage to distract his devotion. It is a reminder that the way we live, is, our lives is very important. And sometimes we can accumulate too much baggage that can distract our devotion, our time, and what we bring and what we give. What we learn from Scripture is that God indeed wants it all. It's a great occasion for that in private devotion, but there's every occasion for that in public worship. What we'll to learn to leave our hobbies at the door, to bring God everything that He's deserving of, and the purity, the singularity of purpose because of the object of our worship. So David again wants worthy worship, and his reasons for this request are found in verse 3. For your loving kindness is before my eyes. We come publicly to worship uh, the Lord God before us is one preeminent riveting factor, and that is the loyal love of God to us from eternity past to time present and that will exist throughout all of eternity. God's loyal love to us ought to be ever-present. You and I know that when we come, we are less than loyal to Him. It ought to rivet us that God is totally and absolutely loyal to us he has expressed it in the gift of His Son, Jesus Christ. That's why that we come. We come in a purity of undistracted loyalty and devotion because of what He has done for us in sending His Son. I love the phrase, before my eyes. You cannot see loyalty, but you can certainly see it in a visible sense. That God was so loyalty to us that He spared no cost or no price. He sent Himself. The vagaries of the cross, it ought in a measure and like manner be expressed 
in our public worship would come because he came for us. He is fixated on divine loyalty. And he has walked, he, he says, uh, in thy truth. I have walked in thy truth. The, the verb, the aspect of the verb is quite colorful. So I've gone back and forth. Gone back and forth to the truth. The chief characteristic of true worship is truth. You absent truth, you may come, but you're not worshiping God. Because God is to be worshipped on his own terms. We're to think God's thoughts after him, not impose our thoughts upon him. It's captured for us, that's it not, in the words of our Savior, woman at the well. Hour is coming. Eschatological reality. And then Jesus said, now is. Uh, when those uh, who worship but to worship in spirit and truth. The word spirit to me is Holy Spirit because of the proximity of John chapter 3. The Spirit of God moves upon those whom He wills and He regenerates His own. And the regenerate are to come and to worship God. That God regenerates His people. He fixes their hearts. He drives their hearts. He makes their hearts alive so that they can come in spirit and worship their one true God. I understand that many occasions in the quantity of worship, sometimes the less than regenerate come. But the regenerate ought to come and give him everything. But notice again, I've left something out, have I not? In spirit and in truth. Truth. God's truth. Everything about the scriptures. The truth ought to fixate us, that we might come to understand a measure of God in the totality of who he is uh, because of his revelation in Scripture. If it's not based on Scripture, then perhaps something is terribly lacking. If it takes me generating smoke to capture your heart, then maybe it's about me and not the God of Scripture. But that's the American way of technology. We use things to attract us when the truth of God ought to own our affections. So David is appealing for God to permit him to return. Contemporary parlance, God, I'm desperate to go to church. Make it so. Uh, the next verses, uh, verses 4 to 8, he speaks to us about how he wants to come. The proper character of worship. That he would come uh, in the right frame, in the right manner. If you will, the qualification of true worshipers. Verses 4 to 8. That worship is qualified. First negatively and then positively. David wants to separate himself from the false. Notice verse 4, I do not sit with deceitful men. Word sit reminds us, does it not, of Psalm 1, 1. Uh, the majesty of the man of God who is true to God who comes to worship 
I will not sit or stand or walk with the ungodly. question is, is who in the world is David referring to? He's referring to other worshipers who have come, who come less than worthy. And David wants to be separate from them. He does not sit with worthless men. This word worthless uh, is used of idols and false prophets. Uh, the longer the uh, history of Israel progressed, the more the nation became full of idolaters. David wants no part with them. He does not want to sit with them in the public worship of God, Jerusalem, the temple, or the tabernacle. There, there is something of the reality that within the church, there is the true church. I, one of my favorite verses to this end is Psalm 73. Blessed are those who are pure in heart, who come worthily, who belong to God, and who have not given affections to idols, uh, who are pure in heart, because there are so many who are not. It's something about the word spoken earlier that God is to sift to David that he would come properly. He doesn't want to sit with false prophets. The longer the history of Israel progressed, the more there were false prophets in the midst of the truth. David did not want to hear them. He did not want to go to them, listen to them, read their books, practice their falsehood. He wanted to be separate because so it is that God is not to be mixed with the false. Perhaps the kicker in all of this is he does not want to go with pretenders. The New American Standard second line of verse 4, nor will I go with pretenders or men who hide their true self. Men who think they can play God false and come in to public worship and be accepted. David wants no part with them. Greek translation has lawbreakers. It's a reminder that true worship does not countenance double lives, double hearts, double minds, the singularity of the worship of the one true God. David returns here to a powerful word expressing emotion, I hate the assembly of evildoers. It is a reminder that true worship can be measured in many different venues and forms and ways. David used a very powerful word. He wants nothing to do with falsehood. There's one true God and one only. He wants to go where that God is, temple and tabernacle. Uh, the figure here is a metonymy of subject, meaning he does not engage in their behavior. But this means something tragic, does it not? And that is the assembly is mixed. David wants it to be purified. Not something that will happen in his life, to be sure. But it is a reminder that we ought to be very careful. A reminder that uh, we ought to proclaim truth and let the truth sift people. Let the truth garner our affections. And let the truth measure our worship and drive us to the God of worship. Is there not something of this in the nation of Israel, Joshua chapter 7, verses 11 and 21. 
God issued a command to go destroy Achan kept silver and gold, hid it in his tent. He tried to play God false, and God caught him, and he lost. Isn't it the same reality in Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira? They played God false. They lied to the apostles, and God caught them, and they died. It's a reminder that there is a price to be paid for playing God false. Keep your heart pure, measured by the truth, because the character of the worshiper is also important in defining what worship is. I'm not unmindful that quantity has its place, but quality does as well. God separated Achan out from the assembly. He separated Ananias and Sapphira out. Let their hall of shame teach us to be pure of heart. On the positive side, David says he washes his hands, verse 6, in innocence. It's an illustration from the ritual practice of the priests. Exodus chapter 40, verses 30 and 31. Moses, Aaron, washed their hands in the labor, washed their feet. The priests did that all of their time as an expression of being washed before God, cleansed before God. Proverbs chapter 13, verse 12, there's a kind of man who is pure in his own eyes, yet is not washed from his filthiness. Something of the story of this is or not in Matthew chapter 27, verse 24. Pilate washes his hands of the crucifixion of Christ and declares his innocence. He never got away with it. You cannot cleanse yourself and keep your own scorecard. Pilate was as guilty as those in the congregation clamoring for the blood of Christ. And that guilt is loudly proclaimed every time we read the apostles and the Nicene Creed in church. That Pilate was guilty as a reminder. You cannot wash yourself. It takes something greater and more profound. And it is a reason we come to worship because of what God does for us in Jesus Christ. Self-justification will not do. You cannot make yourself right before God. You cannot write a check for $37 billion and declare yourself a candidate for heaven. Your check will bounce and the door will be closed. So we come a different way in a different venue. Christ who cleanses us. David uh, really gives us a great picture of this in verse 6. That he wants to go about the altar, O Lord. Go about again and again. A reference to the tabernacle where the sacrifices were made. That God meets with us at the point of sacrifice and the satisfaction of justice, meaning that we come every day imperfectly, but we come forgiven. And that word forgiveness is a mystical word that really ought to drive our hearts every Sunday in the public worship of God. That God owed us nothing. But in Jesus Christ, He gave to us the greatest gift of all time, forgiveness. There's something about that word that ought to 
pull and tug at our hearts every day, but certainly on the day of public worship. Forgiven. And so it is we come to worship him who alone can forgive and who does in his son. The purpose of that is to give thanksgiving and to recount the wondrous works of God. Remind you that at Grace Bible Church, uh, one of our philosophies is that when you come to church, there is a customer of one, the Lord God. We come to please him and not ourselves, not our neighbor, not the quantity, not everyone, but him, and him alone, who is worthy of our praise and worship. And the encounter that God deals with us based upon sovereign grace that we don't have, and so we don't bring $37 billion. And we don't need it because of Christ. And we need him desperately. Lastly, David makes a stark confession, embracing something of a definition of public worship on Sunday mornings. Verse 8, I love the habitation of thy house. Greek translation reads beauty. David is in love with the tabernacle as a figure of speech for him who lives there, the Lord God. The Shekinah glory of God that fell upon the tabernacle. Final chapter of the book of Exodus. And the glory and the majesty of it the people beheld. That's what David wants to see. You and I see it. Sunday mornings, in word and in sacrament, David says, I love that. That's what I want to come to. I'm so in love with that, teams of horses couldn't keep me from it. And so he comes. And the parallel line is just as instructive, where your glory dwells. We have something greater than even the children of Israel had in the tabernacle. They could see the pillar of fire and the glory. You and I have scripture, the very words of God, that God has spoken. And those words to us come to us in scripture to hear the very words of God that speak to the presence and the majesty and the glory of the God of scripture. That he speaks to us about salvation. David says, if he were alive today, he would say, I love the word. I come to hear it, to see it, to feel it, to experience it, and to know it above all things. I love the habitation of thy house where thy glory dwells. Think about it. What chump change would a smoke maker be when you have the scriptures? I mean, why not make A movable stage. Fancy the eyes. People would be so happy. What about the habitation of God in Scripture? And we use so many things today when we have but one in the Word of God. The word tabernacle here reminds us, does it not, of John chapter 1, verse 14, that Jesus tabernacle in our midst. The spiritual presence of the Lord God in the Lord's table. 
he comes to fellowship with his people. If you think about it, it ought to drive our hearts. I suspect many a young man would travel great distances to see his girlfriend. Many an older man would travel great distance to see his sports team, to watch, to listen, to learn. What ought to capture our hearts? The presence of the Spirit of God in the table, the sacrament, to experience it, to know it, to feel it, to know that God gives us strength for another day, week, year of journey in our trek to heaven. That in every sense we come to meet God with the expectation that He will meet with us. And so there is the character of the worshiper in petition. There's the character of the worship in vindication that he can return. There's the character of the worship and the quality of his heart with which he comes. And now David closes with a character of worship involving a great petition, verses 9 to 12. I'm not unmindful that quantity has a place. But so does the quality of the heart when we come and why we come and where we come, and where we ought to be, verses 9 to 12. Do not take my soul away along with sinners, nor my life with men of bloodshed. It's a very troublesome text because it means that, again, false worshipers have entered the assembly, and David knows that God will someday separate them out. It's a terrifying thought. And so David petitions God, God would be gracious to him, that he knows that God will ultimately do something that you and I cannot do, and that is purify the assembly. I understand we on occasion can purify the assembly in church discipline. I understand that we protect certain things, but ultimately, God will affect a radical separation. And David wants to be spared. Illustration of this, uh, the end of the age. Jesus tells a parable of a sower that goes out and sows seed, and uh, it sprouts up plants, and in the night Satan comes and sows seeds, and it sprouts up plants too. And the harvesters turn to the Lord of the harvest and say, shall we go out and uh, rip up the weeds? And the Lord of the harvest says, no. The angels at the end of the age will affect the separation. That's why David is petitioning God. He would not be found false. Because he knows that there is self-deception that can destroy a man's heart and place him in the falls when all along he's deceived and he thinks that he's true. But the angels at the end of the age will make it so. The Son of Man will send forth His angels and they will gather out of His kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness. Those latter two descriptions are pretenders who have come into the assembly that only God can separate. And God will. But the petition ought to cause us to focus upon ourselves that we would be right because God, in the end, will make it so. 
He wants to be spared. That an element of worship is in the purifying notion that we can deceive ourselves. We can fix a great cocoon and crawl in it. And God one day will cut it open. And so there's two petitions here. Verse 11, ransom and be gracious to me. The Greek translation says have mercy. And that is what God does. We come to the house of God to hear the word of God, to experience the presence of God. He will be merciful to us, which is what he does in Jesus Christ. And it enables David to come. It's a riveting focus of worship, him and not us. The last verse is a recapitulation of the character of true worship. And again, character of true worship is as important as quantity. In the American experience, I fear we are all too often fixated upon quantity. Quality is as important as well. Recapitulation, final petition, my foot stands on level ground. Maybe something of this in Psalm 27, 11. Teach me thy way, O Lord, and lead me in a level path. It's the idea that what is straight in contrast to the crookedness of his accusers, of the crookedness of pretenders who have come into the assembly, he wants to stand on level ground before God. And he closes with a vow of worship that to bless or, or that he would give worth to God. In the congregation, notice again, continual reminder here that David wants to return to public worship. He speaks of tabernacle. He speaks of assembly. He speaks of congregation. And here in the congregation, I shall bless God. May it be so. As you and I gather every Sunday morning, and God willing, every Sunday morning that there is to be because of who He is. That the plea of the worship here is that, oh, I can go back to the place where God meets with His people. And that I can go back aright with the qualifications that He sets forth before us in the Word of God. And that He petitions God that God would spare Him from self-deception that he would belong to the true and give God what God is worthy of and that our worship in that sense would be meaningful and powerful because of who God is and what he has done for us in Jesus Christ.